based on the role of Christ as our great high priest. Both passages contain a warning to beware of false conversion and for Christians to take sin seriously. Both passages bookend a detailed look at the priesthood of the Old Testament and how Christ is greater than the old. But our passage today has a bit of a different slant than last week. Instead of focusing on sin and resting from dead works, the author of Hebrews instead uses these similar ideas to encourage his audience and us to good works. While he does warn against falling away, he encourages his audience to not, to not just fight sin, but rather to strive after holiness, to do certain things. And in the midst of this, he gives a beautiful description of Christ, our high priest, and some practical applications that I want us to consider. My theme this morning for our sermon is that Jesus is great and worth everything we are and have. So I want to consider this passage and pick out a few things. Again, it's, I'm not going to have time to go into every detail, uh, but I want us to look at the beauty of our high priest. I want us to consider the building up of each other, and I want us to think about the better possession and what that is and what that means. So the beauty of our high priest, the building up of each other, and the better possession. Firstly, let's talk about the beauty of our high priest. I'm going to try not to be too repetitive today. There's so much here that's good and worth considering that's new, but to quote the inspired Apostle Paul in one of my favorite verses, Philippians 3.1, to say the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. If anyone ever tells you you're being repetitive, or if you feel repetitive, just say that verse to yourself. That's a life verse right there. Say the same things, it's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. And if Paul isn't worried about being repetitive, well, who am I to argue with him? And the author of Hebrews takes this to heart. He really wants us to know the importance of Christ's priesthood. He wants to remind us of us and make sure we lock it in and its implications into our hearts and heads. And so he hits this idea again and again and again. And I love the language he uses in verse 19, saying that we have confidence to enter the holy places. It's important to remember God's holiness and our sin and our unworthiness to enter his presence. It's part of why we have a confession of, faith, or a confession of sin every Sunday, because we want to give us time to think about the ways we've fallen short confess those, to acknowledge those. We never want to think that we are something grand, that we've made it on our own, that we deserve to be in God's presence. When we're honest with ourselves, we know we don't. We ought to feel the weight of our lack of qualifications to come before the Holy One of Israel. The high priests of old who served in the shadow of and pattern of the true holy places could only enter into God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. And only after lengthy and precise preparation, sacrifices and cleansing, and even then, if he messed up, death. The author of Hebrews recounts some of this in uh, the previous chapter, chapter 9, verses 6 through 10. He says, these preparation, preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their duties, but into the second, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The idea of coming confidently into the holy places uh, would have been totally, incredibly foreign to the Jewish mind, and, and rightly so. Up until this point, only the high priest could ever go into God's presence. Only the priest could even approach, draw near to it. For anyone else, it would be death. It would be wrong. It would be bad. There's a picture in that for us. A reminder of our own unworthiness to draw near to God. But the basis for our confidence here in, in chapter 10 the, uh, the basis for our confidence to come before God and enter the holy places is not because we're great, but because our Savior is great. Because we have a great high priest over the house of God. We have confidence to come before God by the blood of Jesus, the author tells us. And the new and living way he's opened through his flesh. He says through the curtain that is his flesh. If you remember the tabernacle, in the temple, there was a big curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. The author says, Jesus opens that curtain. We go through it, through his body, because of his body being broken. You remember the Gospels, when Christ died, when salvation was accomplished on the cross, and the t- curtain of the temple was torn in half. Not just the flimsy little curtain you and I might have a, in our house, but a, a thick wool curtain. It's ripped in half, showing we have every right to come before God's presence through our high priest. We can have confidence. Your standing before God does not depend on you. God's acceptance of you is not based on your performance or work, but solely on the work of Christ and his body and blood for you. And so we have confidence to enter holy places because our high priest is great. And since we have this confidence and since we have a great priest over the house of God, the author charges us, commands us, and exhorts us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith to hold fast our confession of hope without wavering I love this charge and challenge. And it is a challenge at times, right? The Holy Spirit wouldn't be commanding this through the author of Hebrews if this was always easy. At times, it's much easier to not draw near to God for many reasons. Maybe we're doubting. Maybe we feel like God doesn't care. Maybe we feel uh, feel guilt over our sin. Maybe Maybe we think we're capable and equipped and don't really need God. Maybe we wouldn't say that, but certainly we can feel that in our hearts. In our situations, in our difficulties, in our life, there are many reasons why we might not draw near to God. But the author charges us to come before him, to draw near to him, to find grace to help in times of need. And all the reasons we might not want to are answered by this passage. Yes, we doubt, but in Christ we have the full assurance of faith, as he says here. We have 
an assurance of our faith. We can trust in him. We can rest in him. We can have our doubts assuaged. Do we feel like God doesn't care about us, that we're bothering him, that we're not, you know, our, our, our cares and concerns aren't worth his attention? God, the Holy Spirit, calls you today to draw near to God, the Father, through God, the Son. The whole of the Trinity in this passage calls us and says to us, I care for you. I want you to draw near to me. I want you to come to me. God cares for us. Do you feel like you're capable and can handle life on your own? You can't. You can't. You're not capable. Do you feel guilty? You are. But God doesn't call us to draw near to him based on our righteousness, our qualifications, but because of our great priest. God urges us this morning to draw near to him, to bring his, our cares and concerns to him, to know that in Christ we have cleansing from an evil conscience and pure water washing our bodies that we can draw near to him because of the beauty of our great high priest. After this, he gives us another very practical charge, or actually a couple. The next and one of the more practical sections of this text deals with the building up of each other. And I, uh, my first point is a little short. I do want to spend more time here, so don't get too excited. The author continues this list of charges in light of Christ's priesthood, and he shifts from our relationship with God to our relationship with one another. In doing so, gives us an encouraging but difficult uh, list of commands here. Verse 24, we have, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is another command to consider. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Hebrews uh, chapter 2 and, uh, and even into chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, where the author says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And that's the big point of his uh, talk up till then, of his sermon up till then. The big application and crescendo of it all is to ponder, to think about, to consider Jesus, and he gives us another command to consider here, but this time to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, how to care for each other. It's the same word. The author calls each and every one of us to think about, to ponder, to devote time and mental energy to this. Just as we consider Christ and look to him and dwell on him, the author says we are to dwell on how to bless each other. Which makes sense in a way. We are uh, Christ's people. We are his body. Jesus told his disciples that uh, whoever receives his people receive him. That whoever does good to his people does good to him. That there's a unity between his people and himself. That his body is him. And he is in his body. That there's a unity between the two. So that what is done to one can be considered to be done to the other. And on the reverse side, not just good stuff, but bad stuff, we remember Paul, who as Saul uh, condem was condemned by Christ for persecuting Christians, Jesus appeared to him and said in Acts 9, 4 through 5, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul wasn't going around 
throwing rocks up into heaven, trying to hit Jesus with rocks. Jesus is in heaven. He's beyond the reach of Saul. But Saul was persecuting God's people, killing Christians, attacking Christ's body. And Jesus says, that's an attack on me. And likewise, when we do good to each other, we are doing good to him. To consider each other is in a way to consider Christ because we are his and united to him. And to have disdain and contempt for each other likewise is to have disdain and contempt for Christ himself. Is it any wonder then when, uh, that John says in 1 John 2, 9 that whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness because to hate each other is to hate Christ. To be ignorant of each other is to be ignorant of Christ. And to be lukewarm to each other is to be lukewarm to Christ. But just as I mentioned at the start, it's not enough simply not to hate our brothers and sisters. We must pursue the opposite. We must pursue love. And that's exactly what the author commands here. An implicit rejection of hatred, an explicit command to love by considering each other and how to help each other. This command is not nebulous or unclear. It is specific, though there is some generality to it. Considering, again, implies a kind of studying, deep pondering, an intentional use of our time and energy to think through how to love each other. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen on autopilot. If it did, there'd be no real reason for the Spirit to command this. We feel this. It's all too easy for us to get bogged down with our own stuff, our own worries, our own issues. But that doesn't negate this command. And doesn't it make it all the sweeter when someone who's busy, when someone who's go, who is going through something considers you? considers how to stir you up to love and good works. A dear friend recently lost his brother very suddenly and very unexpectedly to liver failure. And he lost him in the morning and asked me to come over that evening. And I went expecting it to be a hard time of grieving, and it was at times. But I remember one of the first things he said to me was, he said, Jacob, how are you? How are you, brother? I was floored. Here he is going through all this. He just lost his brother. He's going through all this stuff, and he's thinking about me. He's asking how I am. He cares about me. That was incredibly precious to me in that moment, and still is. The love on display in a simple question. And he stirred up my love for him, my love for God, encouraged me to do the same to others. I'm not saying you need to do the same exact thing or ignore your own grief and issues. It's important to acknowledge our responsibilities and our worries and and care for ourselves, but also to consider, even in the midst of our own lives and busyness and issues, how we can stir one another up. Maybe you're busy. Maybe things are tough. Maybe you're overwhelmed and don't know where to start. Look around. Find one person you know already. Think, what do I know they're struggling with? What do I know would bless them? What do I know would stir up their love for God and encourage them in good works? It could be as simple as a text or giving them a book that blessed you. It could be bringing a meal. 
I myself know very well the beauty of a, being given a meal or, or gift card and when times are tough. The beauty and the danger. Was, uh, I, there was too much good food, I'll, I'll just say, uh, in all our struggles. And I was very grateful for it, but also my pants were not, and my, my clothes got a little tight there for a bit. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It could be a million different things depending on each individual and each situation. It can be big. It can be small. The author commands us, look at how great and worthy your high priest is. Look at how wonderful and, and how much he's done for you, how much he cares for you, how much he considers you. And think, how can you bless his people, his body? Consider how can you love one another? Choose one person and think. And then choose another. And on and on. The author doesn't give us exactly what this has to look at. He gives us a specific command, but it is a, a bit of a general command. Uh, because he knows it will look different for different people. It will look different in different times. Maybe you can stir up a lot of people by helping in Sunday school or in another ministry because you have the time and ability. Maybe you can stir up people by hosting a family or, so or some over for a meal. Or maybe you can stir up just by a simple word of encouragement or asking, how are you when things are tough even for you? We're called to consider and think about how to minister to one another. It's not just my job as a pastor. It's not just a job for those who have time and freedom from trouble. It's not even a job. It's a joyous privilege we have to be a blessing to each other and in turn to have others be a blessing to us. Right? We all, I mean, we all want this for ourselves. We all want to be the one being considered. We all want to be loved and to be cared for not a bad thing we want that and when that's lacking we can feel the bitterness of that we can feel the the desire and the the, the want of that I, i'm not being shepherded i'm not being cared for i'm not being loved and it can definitely be true at times unfortunately but if we want to be the kind of church that loves well and cares for each other well that only happens when each one of us for ourselves considers how to stir one another up to love and good works. I can't magically make people care about you. I can't magically make you care about others. All I can do is look at the scriptures and with the authority of God's word say, consider how to do this and do it. And in so doing, God will work to make us more and more into a church that stirs each other up and builds each other up. So consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The other practical application in this section on building each other up comes in the next verse, in the next two, well, the next verse, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's hard to consider how to stir one another up if we don't know each other. <laughs> when we're not around each other, when we're not under the preaching of the word, when we're not partaking of the means of grace together, when we're not being stirred up by the worship of God. The author charges his people not to neglect meeting together, referring not just to hanging out, but to joining together in the worship of God as a body. 
he's addressing a church, and these people know each other. They're part of a, an identifiable, bo- uh, identifiable body, which is a local church and that meets together. It's likely that Hebrews isn't just a letter, but rather a sermon preached to a congregation that was written down. It's not certain, but it's uh, um, likely that that's the case. And it's in this context that he says, don't neglect to meet together. Again, if it were easy, if it were not a challenge at times, we wouldn't need the Spirit to give us this charge. But we all feel the pull away from meeting together at times for different reasons. There are legitimate reasons. Uh, We may be drawn away from meeting together. Illness can strike, prevent us from meeting. Disaster can prevent us from coming together. Uh, We can go see family and friends, go vacationing. There are times where we can draw away from each other, other issues. And that's not what's in view here, I don't think. The author here clearly uses the word neglect. And when we look at this word and how it's used elsewhere, it's, it's a forsakening, an abandoning. It's, a, it's not just missing a little bit here and there. This is a neglecting and abandoning. Of course, the question arises then, at what point do we cross into abandoning or forsaking the meeting together? How many times can you miss without crossing that line, right? Is it one time? No, surely not. Otherwise, most of us would probably be, uh, need to do some work. Is missing, you know, once a month, neglecting? There are 52 Sundays, so 52 worship services in a year. How many can you miss and be okay? Is it 10%, 25%, 50%? What's the answer? Well, the author doesn't give us a specific number of times we must come to church, which is what many of us may want. It'd be great if I could stand up here and say exactly how often you have to be here. But would it be great? Is that even the right mindset to have? Is worship something we have to attend? An onerous responsibility that we need to check off? Another way we might think of this is how many date nights or special times together can you miss with your wife or husband before you're neglecting your marriage? How many recitals or ball games or concerts or birthdays can you miss before you're neglecting, abandoning your children? Certainly, if a spouse or parent thought this way, how many can I miss? How many is okay to miss? We question their love for their spouse and children. I'm thinking, you know, if I have a child one day and I think, oh, he's playing, you know, playing ball. How many ball games can I miss and be okay? not the right mindset. Maybe the better question in this discussion would be, why do we not want to meet together at times? What are our priorities and our motivations? The author encouraged us to enjoy worship and prioritize it. What could be more important than the worship of the Almighty? We'll talk about this in the next point more, but these Christians the author is writing to have existential threats associated with worship. They were having their homes plundered. They were being thrown in prison. None of them had been martyred yet, but it's a real possibility. And the urge not to assemble together would have been overwhelming. 
If I go to church this morning, I could be spotted, marked as a Christian, and while I'm at church, have all my stuff stolen, or be arrested and thrown in prison, and then what would my kids do? Who, who's going to hire a convict? Who's, what about all my money and stuff and goods, and what if I get killed? When we think of the things that keep us from meeting together, our reasons oftentimes aren't even in the same city, let alone the same ballpark of what's going on here. And yet even still, the author encourages them not to neglect meeting together. Our reason um, to value the assembly more than their safety, more than their prosperity, more than their future. What do we value over meeting together? When we get down to the brass tacks, we you know think of our hearts. What do we value over hearing God's word, partaking of His sacraments, worshiping Him? Work, certainly we can. Getting chores done, I feel that. Life's busy, I have a lot to do. Sometimes I wake up in the morning on Sundays and see the pile of dishes in the sink and think, I've got to do that, I've got to get that done. Sports, absolutely. Sleeping in, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. What would we do if coming to church was not only possibly an inconvenience, but carried with it real threats. Not only might it get in the way of what I want to do, but might lead to my arrest or poverty or my death even. How much do we value worshiping God and the encouragement of worship? I can't tell you a number of times you can miss church without neglecting to meet together. There isn't a clear-cut answer, just as if we were to ask every married couple in here how many date nights they could miss before they'd feel neglecting their marriage or whatever it might be. Every couple's going to be different. Every person, every heart is going to be different. But I can tell you the context that the author of Hebrews gave this command in and leave the question standing. What do we prioritize? And then you must judge your own heart and your own motivations. But God doesn't call us to this because he hates us, as if he wanted, us to, uh, wanted to curse us with this difficult thing. The clear message in this passage is that meeting together is worth the potential risks. It's worth giving up our other priorities. It's worth giving up our stuff and losing whatever we might lose. Several years ago, another dear friend and his wife uh, lost their first child to miscarriage. I was at a different church, and uh, much to my surprise, I saw them at church the next Sunday. I came up to him and said, what are you doing here? Should, don't you want to be at home? Don't you want to be you know, resting? And I remember what he said to me. He said, where else would we be? His wife sang a solo that morning. I still have it on my phone, the recording. And it was uh, God's Highway, a very nice song. And one of the lyrics stood out to me. The shadows flee, the valley is deep, but evil cannot conquer me. Your rod and staff. They protect me. You give me rest, and you give me peace. They needed to be encouraged. They needed to be among God's people. They needed to draw near to him. They knew the value and worth of meeting together with God's people in God's house to draw near to God. In meeting together, we are coming into the holy places 
We are approaching the God of the universe. We are eating at the table of the Lord and know Christ's presence in the bread and wine. We are meeting with the body of our Lord. We are encouraged in our sin and suffering and struggles. We hear his word and sing his praises. We are in his house. And where else would we be as his children but in his house? Now, I'm not saying, again, that there aren't legitimate and good reasons to miss church. There are. I'm not saying you have to, you know, suffer something terrible and then be here, you're a bad Christian. Like, they could have stayed at home. No one would have judged them for that. But we ought to examine our own hearts, our own motivations, and ask ourselves, where else would we be? We're called to build each other up. To consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And we're called to build each other up by being together in worship. To draw near to God as one body under one roof. God calls us to this this morning from this passage. And lastly, I want to talk about the better possession. The author gives a strong warning again against falling away. Emphasizing the importance of judging our hearts and faith and Um, we went into that last week and talked a a little bit about it, so I'm not going to repeat that too much today. Uh, And these these calls to judge their their hearts and their faith may have made the church a little overly introspective. Uh, And the author wants to guard against that a little bit. He doesn't want them doubting their salvation. He just wants them to check, to examine themselves. And so he spends the last portion of this passage encouraging the church that they have shown evidence of their faith by their suffering and good works. He calls them to remember that after receiving the gospel that they had suffered reproach and affliction. We read in uh, verses 32 and continuing that um, some of them were thrown in prison. And when they visited their people in prison, what would happen is... uh, they would be thrown in prison too. You see that? They're exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes they were partners with those so treated. And we know this happened in history where Christians would go and help those in prison and be Martha's Christians and thrown in prison too. Or while they were out, either visiting those in prison or at church or other places, uh, they had their stuff stolen because they were Christians. Um, but look at how he talks of how they responded to this. Imagine coming to church this morning, and while you're here, the government plunders your house, all your stuff, all your money gone, because you're a Christian. It's totally fine to do that to you. Imagine Pastor Adam being thrown in jail. Maybe that's not so far-fetched. You never make it, especially not in these kinds of jails. Roman jails back then aren't like jails today, where you get a nice bed, you, got, you get food, you get water. Um, if someone didn't bring you food, pretty much you didn't eat. So you go to bring Adam food because you don't want him to starve. You love him. And because you went and brought him food, they mark you as a Christian and throw you in prison too. That's what's going on in this time, in this place. How would you react to all this, to your stuff being stolen. How long until Adam would starve to death? Because no one would want to bring him food. 
Look at how this church handled the situation. In verse 34, the author says, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's crazy. That's mind-boggling. They kept on having compassion on those in prison. They didn't give up on them. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I don't think the author means here that these Christians were ecstatic about losing their stuff or happy that they lost everything necessarily. There's a difference between happiness and ecstasy and, and joy. I don't think he means that they were masochistic and just loved persecution and poverty. Rather, what he's getting at here is that their sufferings could not quench their joy. I'm sure there were serious concerns about what they were going to do and how they would make it, but these could not stop the joy they had. They didn't turn bitter and dark, but rather continued having great joy even in the midst of losing their stuff. It's wild to think about. How could they, how could they do this? What motivated this? Continue on in verse 34. He gives the reason. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the grounds for this kind of joyful acceptance of loss, this kind of compassion on those suffering, even though you might be thrown in prison yourself. It's because you know you had a better possession and abiding one. Their joy was not in their stuff. Their joy was not in their possessions on this earth, but rather their joy was found in a better and abiding possession. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, but to see it from the text, let's ask the question, what is that? What is that possession? Verse 35, the author says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And what's that great reward? We'll get there. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done what the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So now we have a great reward. We have something promised and a better possession. What are these things? In verse 37, he tells us, For explaining what he just said for yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay that is what they're looking forward to that's the basis of their joy and their hope the this one who is coming who the author of hebrews tells us is jesus jesus will return not a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The Messiah, their high priest, Christ, is their better possession. And he is their great reward. He is what has been promised to them. And that's what their joy was in. Because they valued him above, more worthy, better than all earthly goods, better than all stuff, better than their own well-being, because they thought of him as worth all that they have, all that they are, they had joy despite their loss and sufferings because they knew they were rich in Christ. That's what they valued most of all. They recognized Christ was great and worth all that they were and all that they have. And this is a call for us to do the same. I've asked the question already, and I keep asking it, just this whole thing, this whole passage is all about what do we value? What do we love? That's the real root of this passage. 
whether it be in how we consider how to stir one another, another up, uh, what we value over worship, or how do we value stuff and things and our well-being. What do we value? If the answer is what we value most is not Jesus, anything else but him, what will you do when those things are taken from you? Because you will suffer reproach and affliction. They will be taken from you. Your health will fail. Your wealth will go away. Your friends, your plans, your family, your loved ones, your very life may be taken from you. Do we love these things more than God? If we do, we'll hate God in our suffering. How could God take these things from me? But when we value him above all, our joy is unassailable. Our joy is as eternal as God himself. Our joy is certain and set despite whatever may happen here. While we might struggle with worry and doubt and the practicalities, we can trust and know that we have a better possession and an abiding one. The issue, of course, is do we value Christ as we ought? Do we value him above all? Do we think he's worth everything we are and everything we have? Do we love our, pri- our high priest as we ought? Brothers and sisters, you can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he has opened through for, for us through his flesh. You have a great priest over the house of God. You can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed with pure water. Because of this, because all these things are true, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's ponder it. Let's think about it. Let's devote ourselves to building each other up. And let's not just devote ourselves to each other, but let's devote ourselves to meeting together, to the worship of God and gathering together as one body under one roof to worship the one true God. Let's not devalue worship and in so doing devalue the God we worship. Let us consider this great high priest and all that he has done for us and all that he is for us and delight in him. Rejoice in him. Let us value him above all else in our lives. And let us know that no matter what, we have a better possession and an abiding one. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example you've given us, given to us in this church. The author of Hebrews is addressing. We, we marvel at their faith. This joyful accepting the plundering of their property, their, their compassion on those in prison, their, their willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. Lord, we thank you for that, and thank you for the, the example it sets for us, and pray, Lord, that you would work that in our hearts as well. Lord, that you would help us to prioritize Christ, to value him above all, because he is great and worth all that we have and all that we are. Lord, may we feel that and know that as we orient our lives around him. May we feel that and know that as we consider joining together to come before his presence here in this place, in this time. May we not neglect to meet together. Lord, may we know that and feel that as we consider each other. 
our brothers and sisters, those for whom Christ has died. May we consider how to love them, how to build them up. Lord, may we love you and love those who are yours. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work doing this in our heart, um, encouraging us in righteousness, convicting us of sin and where we fall so short. And Lord, may we not harden our hearts this morning, but rather may your word uh, work in us and accomplish your will. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Adam's going to come and lead us in a time of communion this morning.